Let's bow in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that we can come acknowledging its truthfulness, its veracity, um, its inspiration. And Lord, we count it a privilege to be able to open up a personal copy of your word and study it and uh, trust we can apply it to our own lives. And even tonight, as we just look at the introduction to this uh, wonderful book in the Old Testament, Book of Wisdom, Father, that you would um, enable our hearts and our minds to focus and and to really set aside the busyness of our day and maybe our week and all that's gone on and and just uh, focus on our fellowship together around your word. And we pray that your spirit would enable our hearts. And pray for those who couldn't be here tonight. Uh, You know who they are, and we just pray that you would uh, watch over them, care for them, remind them of your presence with them. We ask you to bless our time together in Jesus' precious name. Amen. All right. Well, somebody may ask, well, why did you decide to go through the book of Ecclesiastes? Um, Well, believe it or not, I sat down over my vacation, and I began to knock off the different books that we've taught through, some which I actually forgot (laughs) I taught through, so I'm glad I did this. And uh, Ecclesiastes was one of the books that we hadn't taught through yet, and so I thought, well, it's a a pretty... uh, practical book when you look at it. Um, One commentator calls it the Philippians of the Old Testament. And you may find that hard to believe because what's the word you think of when you think of Ecclesiastes? What else? What's the one word you think of when you think of the book of Ecclesiastes? Time, seasons. Vanity, yes, vanity, come on, vanity. Oh, vanity, vanity, everything's vanity. So it kind of has a negative rap, the book of Ecclesiastes. And, you know, the one thing that we have to understand is time passes um, in our society, in our lives. Uh, Things tend to change, don't they? We're in a continuous change. Um, It was back in 1848, I think, when they discovered gold here in California, and there was a big gold rush. And I remember when I first came to, to, to Grace Bible Church in 98, there was kind of another gold rush. Everybody's making money hand over fist. And then the whole thing blew up. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, everybody, you had people selling houses, moving out of the area. Then it began to pick up again. And now we see our state kind of trailing off again. And so things change in life. You can look at pictures of yourself from even maybe a year, five, ten years ago. And people go, whoa, that was you? (laughs) Uh, Wow, you had hair, you know, whatever. Um, Things change, and life changes. And and so uh, there was a uh, writer in the New York Spirit back in 1926. He wrote this. He says, set your shoulder joyously to the world's wheel, you may spare yourself some unhappiness if beforehand you slip the book of Ecclesiastes beneath your arm. And that's how practical this book is. So why study the the book of Ecclesiastes? Um, It seems to take a very gloomy view of life, you might say. Uh, Some people doubt there's any spiritual uh, benefit of reading the book at all. Some even question whether it belongs in the Bible, believe it or not. Um, One of the ancient rabbis, when they read Ecclesiastes, they said this, O Solomon, who's the author, where is your wisdom? Not only do your words contradict the words of your father David, they even contradict themselves. That was one of the rabbis early on. Um, Scholars today say, even today, Quoting them, it's the low watermark of God-fearing Jews in pre-Christian times that read this book. Um, Some doubt that the author even had a personal relationship with God at all because of the kind of the sub-Christian gloomy attitude that we see here. It seems very far removed from a lot of the other piety in in the Old Testament. So what is... The question is, what is Ecclesiastes doing in our Bibles? And why should we take the time or the trouble to examine it and study it? Um, 
if we want to know, I think, what's happening in today's society, in this changing, rapidly changing society we live in, this culture, uh, you have to understand why a powerful creator allows evil, allows injustice, allows struggle, allows sin, all these other inconsistencies. Um, why does he allow all that if he's so powerful? Well, all those answers are right here in this book. And so it has a very practical application. Um, I think one of the reasons, this isn't in your outline, but do you have your outlines, by the way? Okay. Um, One of the reasons we should study Ecclesiastes is because it's an honest um, look at the troubles of life. And we all have troubles in life. And it's so honest that one American novelist said this, Herman Melville, he said, it's the truest of all books. That's how he described the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, And more than anything else, Ecclesiastes captures the fertility of life. It captures the, the frustration of us living in this fallen world. It's honest to talk about the drudgery of work, uh, the injustice of government, the dissatisfaction of even things like foolish pleasure, uh, the mind-numbing repetition of life some of us fall into, the treadmill, you might call it. Um, Think of Ecclesiastes as the only book of the Bible written on a Monday morning. (laughs) Uh, And so help... As we, as we go through this book, it's going to help us to be honest with God about the problems, not just in life in general, but in our lives. Um, even those maybe here who um, have issues trusting in the goodness of God. One scholar describes Ecclesiastes as a back door that allows believers to have the sad and skeptical thoughts that we usually do not allow to enter the front door of our faith. And we all have questions at times. So it's honest about life. Um, Another reason is we're going to learn what will happen to us if we choose what the world tries to offer instead of what God has given us in Christ. And we all struggle with that at times. Um, The writer, the author here, had more money. He enjoyed more pleasure. He possessed more human wisdom than anyone else in the world the Bible says. Yet everything still ended in what? Frustration. It says vanity, vanity. Um, And you know what? The same thing will happen to us. And a lot quicker because we don't have all those things if we choose to live for ourselves rather than to choose to live for God. Um, He says, why make your own mistakes when you can learn from an expert like me instead. That's really what the author's saying. You know, hey, I've been there, done that, don't do this. So it, it will help us to understand what will happen to us if we choose the world's ways rather than the, what God has already provided for us. Th- thirdly, we want to study it because it asks the biggest and hardest question that people still have today. Questions, I should say, the biggest and hardest questions. And... There's some debate as to when this book was written, but whether it was written in Solomon's glory days, um, the Golden Empire, or when Israel was in exile, it addresses the same basic question. The times are relevant. What's the meaning of life? What's the meaning of life? Why am I here? Why am I so unhappy? Does God care for me? Why is there so much suffering and injustice in the world? Is life really worth living? People ask these questions on a daily basis, and yet we're going to find that this book answers them from a biblical perspective. Derek Kidner put a good commentary together on this. He says this, Wisdom is his base camp, but he's an explorer. His concern, speaking of the author, is with the boundaries of life, and especially with the questions that most of us would hesitate to push too far. Sometimes we want to ask questions. We feel, I better not ask that question. Well, 
Solomon doesn't relent. He, he asks those kind of questions. And he's not satisfied with the easy answers sometimes that children give in Sunday school. I remember a illustration. It was around Easter time, and, and uh, the Sunday school teacher asked these young children in Sunday school, what hops around on four legs and is furry? And they go and boy, Ray, Jesus. You know, what? You know, it's just like everything, the answer is Jesus. You know, that was obviously the wrong answer. It was a rabbit. But, you know, the kid just thought, well, we're in Sunday school, and the answer must be Jesus. The author doesn't settle for that. The author doesn't settle for that. Um, as a matter of fact, part of his spiritual struggle is with the very answers that he has always been given. Um, he's like the, the, the person, you answer the question, and they say, okay, but, <laughs> and they have another question. That's, that's how the author approaches this. So he, he answers some of the biggest and hardest questions. Fourthly, it will help us worship the one true God. Because there's a lot of disappointments in life, there's a lot of skeptical doubts that we may have, and th- this book teaches many great truths about God. It presents him as the mighty creator. It presents him as the sovereign Lord. Um, it presents him as the all-powerful ruler of the universe. And so it's going to help us in our, our knowledge of God as we go through this book together. Um, and the last reason I think we should study this book is because it teaches us how to live for God and not just for ourselves. It teaches us how to live for God and not just for ourselves. It gives us some really grassroots, really basic principles that we need to have in order to build a biblical, God-centered world view. And that is very important. Your worldview is very important, how you look at the world. Do you look at it through a biblical principles, or do you look at it through worldly principles? Um, you think of the, the goodness of creation and our own absolute dependence on the creator himself. And so he gives us a lot of different instructions we're going to find out as we go through the book about everything from money, sex, power, the whole thing. covers everything. And so it has a lot to say about life. It has a lot to say about death. And a lot of it's very practical. So we're going to find biblical truths that we can literally apply to our lives immediately. And so that's important, I think, that we understand why we're, why we're doing this. Um, the Jews call this book a book of, of joy. As a matter of fact, around this time of the year, when they have the uh, Feast of Tabernacles, they actually read, traditionally, the book of Ecclesiastes. Because they look at it as a book of of joy, either the end of September, early October. It's the time of their annual harvest, and they, re, they recall their wilderness experience uh, with uh, Israel and all that. And um, the fact that it's read during a, a, a festival of great joy speaks to the idea that it's not a negative book. It's not pessimistic, and that's how it's been viewed because of some, a couple passages. Um, now, the different wisdom books in the Bible, we have different historical, Book of Moses, historical books, all that stuff, poetry books. Well, these are wisdom books. And um, Derek Kidner, in his, his, his commentary, compares the three major wisdom books. And he compares them to houses because of texts within those books. And so the first book was the book of Proverbs. Is what he compares. And if, you, if somebody can look up chapter 9, verse 1. Chapter 9 in Proverbs, verse 1. And somebody else can look up Job, Job, chapter 1, verse 19. And then someone else can look up Ecclesiastes 12, verses 3 to 4. So the first book that he's comparing of these three, Proverbs, Job, and Ecclesiastes, is... Proverbs, and he, he, he looks at it, he compares them to houses, because in Proverbs chapter 9, verse 1, whoever has that, go ahead and read it. Wisdom is built on 
Okay, so it speaks of a seven-pillared house of wisdom. That's what Proverbs speaks of wisdom as. Job, chapter 1, verse 19. This speaks of a house that is wrecked because it's in a storm. Uh, somebody read that, 119. Okay, so you see this house that's collapsed. And then Ecclesiastes speaks of not a seven-pillared house or a wrecked house, but it speaks of a great house in the grip of, you might say, decay in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 12. Who has that one? So you see a house in, in decay in that. In that. So you have those three, three different aspects of these books of wisdom. Well, Proverbs is considered a, a practical path to wisdom, you might say. And what do I mean by practical? It, it really tells us, if you read through Proverbs, it's going to tell you things that you have to do in your life to demonstrate that you possess wisdom. You see that almost every page in Proverbs. Okay? And if you do this, this is not good. If you do this, this is good. So it tells you things that you do that will demonstrate that you have wisdom. Ecclesiastes is not a, necessarily a practical path. It's more of a reflective path to wisdom. And by that I mean it's for thinkers. It's thinking about the process of obtaining wisdom which leads you to down the practical path, but it, it starts with the thinking. It's really for theological thinkers. Um, <clears throat> some people maybe say, well, I don't want to get into theology. Well, you know, we all need to be thinkers. First Peter chapter 1, verse 13, um, in, the, in the King James, it says that we should gird up the loins of our minds, but I'll read it out of the ESV. It says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The idea is that we should be thinking about things, that we shouldn't just be um, just accepting whatever anybody's teaching us. In the New Testament, in the book of Acts, they called them what? Bereans, remember? Because they just didn't accept whatever was, who was up there talking. They went home and they searched it out. And I pray that that's what you do. It doesn't matter who's teaching, whether it's an elder, a pastor, a visiting person, that you have your Bible open and you're saying, well, does, does this say what he says it says? All right? And, and that's kind of what the book of Ecclesiastes is, is going to find out. Now, there's a lot of people that believe, well, there's no theology in the book of Ecclesiastes. That's why I put that little chart in there. Um, Barrett came up with this little chart in his commentary, and it was a... Uh, uh, just a, a, a great little summarization. You can look all that up on your own. But really, it, it makes the doctrine of God uh, central throughout this book. And, you know, I've read some commentaries, and they say, well, there's nothing really theological in that. And then I ran across this, and I thought, wow, there's a whole lot of that in there. Um, it says, God's sovereign control over man, God's providential grace, God's eternality, his, his uh, creatorship, perfectionism, justice, and holiness, abode, omnipresence, omniscience, omnipotence, the perseverance of his saints, uh, reverential fear, obedience before sacrifice, speaks of God's word. Um, the word God occurs, by the way, 40 times in Ecclesiastes. And really, the, the, the summary of the exhortation of the whole book can be found uh, under the words fear God. That's really what it's, it's pointing us to do. And so it really points out to us all these, these different theological um, things that we should be able to see. It speaks of, of man, of the fleeting life. It, it speaks of sin. It speaks of all kinds of things, not just about God, not just about theology, okay, 
but about all these other kinds of doctrines as well. And so we'll see that as we go through too. But as I mentioned, sometimes we think of the book of Ecclesiastes and, and that verse, vanity, all is vanity, comes to mind. Um, that word vanity means emptiness. Okay? It, uh, it occurs 34 times in Ecclesiastes, but that's just because it's, it, it says it over and over and over whenever it says it. Okay, vanity, 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 and then it says in another section, another section. But it occurs a total of 34 times. But if you look at that word chart there, the words, um, the repeated terms are more positive than negative. So don't look at Ecclesiastes as a negative book, as a pessimistic book. Um, The word good occurs 52 times in the book. Wisdom and wise, God, heart, time. Life, rejoice, give, eat, drink. All those are positive things. Now, you see a couple negative terms there. But for the most part, the overall theme of the book is one of of positive. Um, But that word vanity, one commentator, when it it talks of there in in verse 2, where he says, vanity of vanity, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. He put this in his own translation and he, he if, if you think about it it's kind of practical he says soap bubbles soap bubbles all is soap bubbles and if you think about a bubble what what happens it's there and then boom it's gone no way you can put it back it's gone and that's kind of what he's talking about here um in deuteronomy thirty-two twenty-one, the same word for vanity is translated worthless idols Uh, or in Isaiah 30, verse 7, it's translated just worthless. In Isaiah 49, 4, it's translated uh, no purpose at all. Uh, Isaiah 57, 13, I thought this is good, it's translated a puff of air, a mere breath that's here and gone. In Jeremiah 10, 3, it's translated as a sham, (laughs) Um, but you might think of it as an enigma, something you can't understand. And we all have things in our lives that just don't practically make any sense in our own thinking. Maybe we're on our way to work and we got a big meeting and we're driving down the freeway. And what happens? We get a flat tire. It's like, Lord, why right now do I have to have this flat tire? We don't understand why. And we may never understand why. But we, we, we can't say that God doesn't have a purpose in that. Um, there, there's kind of opposites throughout the book that we're going to see extremes. And if you think of it this way, think of the words everything and nothing. Those are the two extremes that are covered in this book over and over and over again. And what's interesting the Hebrew word for each one of those, the Hebrew word for everything and the Hebrew word for nothing, if you look at them, you can go home and look them up on your computer, they're almost identical. Maybe if you don't know Hebrew, you wouldn't even notice the little jot on the one that the other one doesn't have. And it's like, wow, it boils down to something that small Everything versus nothing. And it's not that one is negative, one is positive. That's how we think of it. Boy, if I had everything, then I would be happy. Well, that's not true. Because Solomon pretty much had everything. And he was throwing his arms up going, wow, everything's just vanity. Uh, But if you have nothing, that could be a tremendous blessing too. And what's the common denominator between those two extremes? God, right? Christ. If we have Christ in the right place in our own hearts, whether we have everything or whether we have nothing or somewhere in between, it's irrelevant. Because we know that we're right where God wants us to be. And so he kind of draws that out as he goes through this book. Well, what's the purpose? What's the meaning of, of this book, Ecclesiastes? Um, look at chapter 12. We read part of this. Chapter 12. And look at verse 
You can just follow along, verses 9 to 14. 9 to the end. It says, Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails, firmly fixed are the collected sayings. Look at this. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, as all has been heard, he says this, Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, and with every secret thing, whether good or evil. What's the purpose? It's to teach us how to discern all this, to teach us wisdom. Um, it, to, to help us do what God commands us to do here, to obey Him and to be fearful of Him in a reverential fear. Uh, and so He's going to kind of bring us to that climax in the book in these 12, in these 12 chapters. Um, a lot of people look at the book of Ecclesiastes with a lot of skepticism. Uh, they... They look at it in a wrong light. Gleason Archer, who was a brilliant man, he spoke many languages and was a true servant of Christ. Um, the story says that when he was on his deathbed, he would have his students come in and read to him. And they'd bring in their Bible and they'd start reading out the New Testament. I mean, this is on his deathbed. He'd say, stop, where's your Greek New Testament? I want to hear the Greek. <laughs> and they'd have to go get their Greek New Testament and come back and read from the Greek to this man, because that's how well he understood the languages. He said this about um, Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes was written to convince men of the uselessness of any worldview which does not rise above the horizon of man himself. Think about that. It doesn't rise above the horizon of man himself. What's he saying? If you have a worldview without God... It's useless, completely useless. Um, and so he says, as a result of the writer's careful examination of man's environment, how we live every day, the society we live in, he says this, it leaves us hungry to know God. He le it leaves us hungry to know God. Um, Walter Kaiser, who wrote another commentary on the book, he suggests that Ecclesiastes should be viewed as a missionary outreach to Gentiles through the channel of wisdom. Uh, it was kind of interesting when I read that. I thought, that's interesting. You know, at the very beginning here, it talks about the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Well, it could very easily say the words of the evangelist. <laughs> okay? Um, and that's really kind of how that's looked. That, that title there, preacher, really has the idea of gatherer. Preacher or gatherer. It has the idea of gathering people around the word of God, the truth of God. Now, how did it find its way into our Bibles? Um, well, as early as 190 B.C., history tells us, that Ben Surak quoted the book of Ecclesiastes. So it has to be at least back to then. All right? Um, in Qumran, they found four fragments of the book of Ecclesiastes in the fourth cave. And so that pushes it back even further. Because, see, there's a lot of commentators, when they read this and they you know, know the, the different languages and stuff, they look at the language and they go, wow, this doesn't seem like an old... You know, it's got a lot of Aramaic in it. It's this kind of, well, well you know, that's a very old language. That goes way back, even to the book of Genesis, Aramaic does. So, you know, when they, when they say it's relatively new and it's writing, it's probably not. Um, 
you know, they basically say that because of the author, who we believe to be Solomon, there's people that can test that too, but we're not going to go into all that. Um, you know, you can probably suggest, Martin Luther thought that, that uh, Jesus Ben Sirach, the guy that I quoted earlier, that he wrote it. That's what his belief was, because he quoted it. But um, that doesn't explain the older copies of the originals that they found. So when, when you stop and, and look at all this, probably around 940, 932 B.C. is a conservative date for this book. Now, different comments, we don't know, you know, uh, it doesn't even really tell us who wrote the book, literally. We can kind of conclude that it was Solomon by different things that we're not going to go into tonight. But there's a lot of linguistic evidence that points to that. Um, and there's also a lot of uh, internal evidence. Uh, for example, there were only four kings who ruled over Israel as opposed to Judah in Jerusalem. That was Saul. David, Solomon, and Rehoboam. And so it, 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 it you know, discusses all this in the book that kind of limits it to Solomon alone. Um, so you can look at the book as a whole as, like we said, wisdom literature. Um, there's a lot to, to, to gain from the wisdom books and we're going to gain a lot as we go through this. Um, but each section of the outline there, in a roundabout way, concludes the following things. First of all, the weakness of man's accomplishments. That's one of the, the sections. Um, another section would be the uncertainty of our fate, of man's fate. Uh, or the impossibility of attaining true knowledge on this side of glory, in this world. You're not going to totally get there. And also it even speaks of the need to enjoy life. And so when we, we look at the book of uh, Ecclesiastes, there's some foundational, I guess, spiritual truths that we're going to run into as we go through this. Um, and one of the first ones is mankind searches for happiness in enduring Substance. Look at chapter 2. I'm just going to jump around here a little bit. Verse 24. Chapter 2, verse 24. Somebody can read that for us if you can. Anybody got it? 2.24? All right, so he presents mankind here with this invitation to enjoy life. You know, I think some Christians need to understand this foundational, foundational truth. You know, sometimes they walk around like they just drank a jar of pickle juice or something. You know, woe is me, I'm a Christian. I'm gonna... And it's like, no, you know what? I mean, we're to be a, a light, a salt. We're to be something different that stands out in this world. And so... Um, we need to be reminded of that. And he really does this as an invitation to enjoy life. He talks about the unparalyzed, that, that we're unparalyzed by life's uncertainties, that we enjoy life as what? As God's gift. Look at verse 11, verses 1 to 6. Chapter 11, 1 to 6. He says, Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven and even eight. For you know not what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if the tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there will it lie. He who observes the wind will not sow. And he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you know, as you do not know the way, the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child. So you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning, sow your seed, and at evening, withhold your hand. For you do not know which will prosper, this or that, 
or whether both alike will be good. So there's all these uncertainties in life, but you know what? We can enjoy life as God's gift. Um, He continues there in verse 9, and he really talks about the undepressed, being undepressed by life's shortness. Uh, You know, life is very brief. We're here but for a vapor, the Bible says. And look at what it says in 9... Uh, chapter 11, verses 9 to 10. Rejoice, O man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things God will bring you uh, into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body, for youth and the dawn of life are what? Vanity. They're here and gone. Um, it, it shows us a reverence that we should have a reverence for serving God and enjoying life as God's gift. Look at chapter 12, verses 1 to 4. Well, the whole chapter, really, but he, he, I'll just read the first couple of verses there. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth. Behold, before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the moon and the sun and the or before the uh, sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after rain in the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and we went through that. And you, you can read this and it, it just gives us this idea that, you know what, um, we're here to serve the Lord and, and we should enjoy every day just as that. So the first kind of foundational spiritual truth here in the book is the idea that mankind searches for happiness and enduring substance. Um, secondly, it talks about divine sovereignty. It talks about God's providential um, care for us. Um, it says in chapter 5, verse 2, 5, verse 2, It says, be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are, you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. All right, the idea there is really that you have to believe that God is in heaven. He's a creator. And, you know, we, we don't have the right to sit around and argue with God. We do that all the time in our minds, but we shouldn't. Uh, we have to accept that God's world cannot be changed to our liking. It's not about us. Look at chapter 3, and we know that. We're not going to read it. Verses 1 through 8, right? Time for everything. Someone mentioned that earlier. Time to be born, time to die, time to plant, time to pluck, time to kill, time to heal, all this stuff. Well, you know what? That's the way it is. That's exactly right. It is life. And it can't be changed just because we don't like it. Um, also, you can't necessarily plan on the future based on the present. Because patterns keep changing. <laughs> there's, there's no certainty here. And they change in accord with God's plan. Look at chapter 7, verse 14. 7, verse 14. It says, In the day of prosperity, be joyful. But in the day of adversity, consider, God has made the one as well as the other. So that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Or over in chapter 8, verse 17, similar principle here. Then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man, however much man may toil... In seeking, he will not find out. Find out, even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find out. So it has the idea that you know what? There's some things we're just going to have to be content with not knowing, on this side of glory. Um, and also, he even talks about the idea, speaking of the divine sovereignty of God, that we ha- you have to believe that God is the judge. I mean, yeah, he's a loving God, but he's also a judge, and he's going to bring all wickedness into judgment. Um, Chapter 3, verse 17, is one of the places he speaks of that here. 
I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. And you can see that theme, chapter 5, chapter 8, throughout the whole book. So you have to believe that, that this divine, sovereign God that we serve is uh, providential over all of our existence. And then one of the last spiritual truths, and we'll bring this to a close. So the first one was mankind searches for happiness and enduring substance. The second one was divine sovereignty and providence characterize human existence. And then the third one is really the golden mean of conduct, human conduct, is the wise path to follow. And by that I mean avoid excesses, follow moderation. Avoid excesses and follow moderation. Look at what he says in chapter 7, verse 10. Chapter 7, verse 10. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. You ever ask that question? Gee, why am I like this? Um, Be content with the present. Be content where you're at in life. You know, I think that's one of the, the biggest things that a lot of young people have issues with is they, they have a hard time being content in their present situation. And so they're always looking for the next level or whatever. And it's not that you shouldn't try and work hard and all that. We're not saying that. But sometimes God has you right where you're at for a purpose and a plan. And it may not be even concerning you. It may be somebody else in your you're at your work or whatever, that you're there to be a blessing to them. Um, it's not always about us. So we need to be content with the present. Um, be conciliatory. Uh, look at chapter 10. This is very practical. Verses 12 to 14. He says, the, word of a, the words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool what? consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness. And the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what it is to be. And who can tell him what will be after him? So when you, when you look at those verses, it really talks about our words, our tongue. James talks about that, right? And we've all had issues with that probably in life. Ah, I, wonder, I wish I wouldn't have said that. I wish I wouldn't have taken the bait. I wish I wouldn't have responded that way. Whatever. So it has the aspect of being content, being conciliatory, and then also being cautious. Look at chapter 8. Chapter 8, verse 1. He says, Who is like the wise? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? A, man, a man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme. And who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command, keeps a uh, whoever keeps a command will know. No evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything. Although man's trouble lies heavy on him, for he does not know what is to be. For who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of life. For there is no discharge from war nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man in his hunt. And so we have to be cautious of the way we live in this world. Um, you know, there's really a, a phrase, live without reserve, die without, what? Regret. Live without reserve, die without regret. Now, you read that and it sounds philosophical. It sounds like something Aristotle would come up with or something. But really, it's, it's a very biblical perspective of life. Um, when you understand that 
you know what? The gift of life is from who? From God. So why shouldn't we live life to the fullest? Live without reserve. Why should we not die without regret? Um, I think he'll hold in judgment anybody who abuses those gifts. Uh, And so those are the three spiritual foundational truths that he, he lists there. And Ecclesiastes also describes three problems that are faced by us in life. Um, he talks about the uncertainty of time and chance in chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. He says, uh, Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time. Like fish, they are taken in an evil net. And like birds, they are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. So there's an uncertainty. Um, that problem of life that we have. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. The New Testament speaks of that in James as well. Uh, even though people seem to control their destiny, they seem to be in control of their lives, you know what? They're really not. Because any one of us could drop dead right now. We have no control over that. Okay? So we have uncertainty of, of time and chance. And then also, another problem is the, the endemic and incurable nature of wickedness. Um, it demonstrates that God is, or that man is, is inherently not good. We see that in our society uh, overwhelmingly. Uh, you see all the things that are going on, all the immorality. I mean, you read Romans 1, that's kind of where we're living right now. They're calling um, good bad and evil and, and, and evil good. It's, it's totally reversed. Everything's upside down. And that's just the in, incurable nature of wickedness. I remember I was at a KFAX thing, and they were talking about racism, and they were all talking about how they can solve racism in the church or whatever, and I remember just saying, you know what? Nobody's going to solve this. It's not going to happen. It's going to be with us till glory, because that's the fallen nature of man. Okay? Now, not that we shouldn't do our part. You don't just throw your hands up in the air. But at the same time, don't chase some pipe dream thinking that you're going to live in some utopia where everything is perfect. It's not going to happen because of sin. So you have uncertainty of time and chance, the incurable nature of wickedness, and then the third problem that he's going to point out here in the book is that death always has the final word in any human enterprise. Death always has the final word in any human enterprise. Um, Look at verse 14 of chapter 2. Verse 14 of chapter 2, he says this, The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceived that the same event happens to them all. (laughs) Then I said in my heart, What happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this is also Vanity, And so it, it, it talks there, really, about death. He says, for of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remember, remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. Uh, sometimes we tend to forget that. We think that somehow life is going to go on forever. And it really hinders our idea that why God left us here as a church. I mean, he could have just taken us out of here, right? He could have come up with a plan with once you're saved, boy, you're just raptured right to heaven. You're out of here. And let all those sinners down there on earth sort it out. But he didn't. He said, no, I'm going to save you, and then you're going to be salt and light on this, this place that's been filled with sin and stained with hurt and heartache. 
And you're going to stay there. And you're going to stay there to be my witnesses. And you don't have a lot of time. In all of eternity, we have, we're but a vapor, the Bible says. So we have very little time here on this earth when you look at it in regard to eternity. And he's given us the call. He's given us the commands. He's given us everything we need to do what he calls us to do. And I guess in the end, I throw my hands up and I go, why are we doing it? <laughs> why aren't we concerned about our neighbor's souls? They're on their way to hell. Why aren't we more forthright with them with the gospel? Um, and because reading to me today, California passed something about churches, pastors not being able to talk about homosexuality or whatever. It's not a law. It's just a, uh, what was it, a resolution. So it's not enforceable. But it shows you the path we're going on. That if you speak out against the LGBTQZ, whatever else they got on there, community, that that's hate speech, and they'll come and they'll shut you down. Well... You know, I mean, truth is truth, right? And if that day comes, you know, I'm sure that there are some pastors who will cower to that. But God's truth will prevail. And so, you know, we just have to trust in that. And, but we see the times closing down slowly. You know, just things are going in the gutter more and more and more. And that should give us even more of a drive not only to meet together as the body of Christ to study his word so that we can grow stronger in our own faith, but once we leave this place, who are we talking about? Who, who are we sharing the truth that we learn here in this place on Wednesdays and on Sundays outside of this place? Or are we just keeping it to ourselves? Because the, the idea is that, you know what, we're, we're called to action. We're not called to sit on our hands and uh, let the world go by until the rapture happens. And so all that, all that as an introduction to this book, and next week we'll get into the, the first chapter a little bit.